Hello and welcome. My name is Alice and this is the Backtracker History Show podcast, where I ask you to join me on a meander down through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And one of the great things about this podcast is that I can go into more detail about each story because there are no time constraints. And it's really easy to show your support just by spreading the word, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends. It really does help. If you want to get in touch with me with show ideas, comments or information, you can via Twitter or Facebook by using at UK the capital B, capital T and a capital UK or emailing me at info at backtracker.co.uk Now, on with the show. Before we start with our main story, let me just give you a brief outline of the Crimean War. Crimean War was a conflict fought between the Russian Empire against an alliance of French, British, Ottoman and Sardinian troops. The war broke out in October 1853 and continued until February 1856. Russia was expanding into the Danube region, Romania today. This was under Turkish control. Therefore, Turkey and Russia went to war in 1853. Britain and France did not like to see Russia pushing down into the Danube region. They feared Russia would continue pushing down and eventually come into British India through Afghanistan, and so they became involved. Religious tensions also played a part. Russia made an issue of the fact that the holiest sites in Christianity, Jerusalem, Bethlehem, etc., were under Turkish control. In September 1855, the Russians evacuated Sevastopol following the storming of the vital Malakov bastion by French troops. In short, Russia gave in, and there began a move towards peace talks. The Treaty of Paris was signed on 30th of March, 1856. Incidentally, Florence Nightingale heard about the poor medical conditions in the Crimea region, and went there as a civilian to help. She became a big news story. The Crimean War was arguably the first media-driven war. The Battle of Balaclava, fought on the 25th of October, 1854, during the Crimean War, was part of the siege of Sevastopol, an Allied attempt to capture the port and fortress of Sevastopol, Russia's principal naval base on the Black Sea. The engagement followed the earlier Allied victory in September at the Battle of the Alma, where the Russian general Menshikov had positioned his army in an attempt to stop the Allies progressing south towards their strategic goal. And it was at the Battle of Balaclava that our first Bristolian fought, Thomas John Tudor, who was born in the Temple Parish of Bristol to William and Elizabeth in August 1831. Thank you. 
Word of the Week. And for this week's word, I give you... Raglan. Raglan is a cake-like overcoat with sleeves extending to the neck rather than the shoulder. The coat itself is no longer in fashion, but the sleeve style called raglan sleeve is still used for coats, sweaters and dresses. It was named after the Crimean officer Fitzroy James Henry Somerset, first baron of Raglan. He had served under Arthur Wellesley, Duke of Wellington, and lost an arm in Waterloo. He also distinguished himself during the Crimean War. The funeral of Thomas Tudor, aged 62, one of the Balaclava heroes who died on the 4th of March, 1892, was held at Arnesville Cemetery and some thousands of people assembled along the route on the 9th of March. Thomas belonged to the Royal Dragoons and was believed to be the last of that regiment who took part in the Crimean campaign. He was not actually at the famous charge made by the Light Brigade, he being of the Heavy Brigade. A detachment from his regiment attended the funeral, marching on either side of the open hearse, carrying the coffin, which was covered with a Union Jack and the deceased sword and shield, the latter being decorated with a black plume. A large wreath from the officers of the deceased's old regiment was also placed on the coffin. The hearse was preceded by a number of men of the 28th Regimental District from Horfield, and after it came the band of the 28th, playing at intervals the Dead March in Saul. The funeral service was read by Reverend Robards, curate of St Mary Redcliffe, and at the conclusion of which the firing party, which consisted of 12 of the 28th Regimental District in full uniform, firing three volleys over the grave. The firing party fixed bayonets and marched with the remainder of the soldiers into the road outside the cemetery, where they were drawn up into a line and then marched back to their barracks. Among the spectators were a large number of soldiers on the retired list, including Mr Anthony Wilder, decorated with his medals. Mr Wilder, who was then 62 years old and was for many years a familiar figure at the Joint Station, formerly belonged to the 11th Hussars and took part in the famous charge at Balaclava, immortalised by the Poet Laureate Alfred Lord Tennyson. The representatives of the Royal Dragoons were Sergeants Williams and Snow, who apparently looked amazing and caused a lot of comments among the women. Quartermaster Johnson was in charge of the men from the Hawfield Barracks, and it was intended that the soldiers were to sing a hymn at the graveside, but owing to the large crush, it was thought best to disperse with this. The day after the funeral, Colonel G. Salis Schwab of the 28th Regimental District in Hawfield Barracks, wrote to the newspapers with a plea for Thomas Tudor's family. Sir, there is an account in your issue of the funeral of Thomas Tudor. It is well to honour the dead, 
and at the same time to remember the living. Tudor has left a widow and three children totally unprovided for, and I cannot but think that many who witnessed the military funeral, or read of it, may be inclined to show their respect for a gallant soldier by a small contribution towards the support of those who are dear to him. I shall be glad to direct the expenditure to the best advantage of any sums which may be entrusted to me. Contributions can be sent to the recruiting officer, Hotwell's Barracks, or any officer or non-commissioned officer of volunteers, who I feel sure will not mind the trouble of transmitting the same to me. Book of the Week Just in case some of you wanted to find out more information about the Crimean War, this week's book, Conflict in the Crimea, written by D.S. Richards, goes into a lot more detail. It includes contemporary accounts of a large number of British men and women who were unwittingly caught up in this appalling war. As well as surviving the efforts of their determined enemy, the Russians, they had to overcome the harshest weather, rampant disease and woefully inadequate administrative support. As revealed to a shocked nation by the first war reporters, medical care was largely non-existent and the wounded faced the trauma of being left for days without medical attention. Battles were prolonged, desperate and hugely costly. The Crimean War was the catalyst for the modernisation of the army. Due to the disgraceful injustice of conditions and lack of leadership and care by many in authority. If you recall, at Thomas Tudor's funeral, there was Anthony Wilder, and he was in the charge of the Light Brigade. So that gives me an excuse to tell you more about what happened then. The order for the cavalry charge on the 25th of October, 1854, proved catastrophic for the British cavalrymen. A disastrous mistake riddled with misinformation and miscommunication. The calamitous charge was to be remembered for both its bravery and tragedy. The Allied forces decided to lay siege to the port of Sevastopol. The Russian army, led by Prince Menishkov, launched an assault on the British base at Balaclava. At first, it looked as if a Russian victory was inevitable as they gained control of some of the ridges surrounding the port, therefore controlling the Allied guns. Nevertheless, the Allies managed to hold on to Balaclava. Once the Russian forces had been held off, the Allies decided to recover their guns. This decision was to lead to one of the most crucial parts of the battle, now known as the Charge of the Light Brigade. The decision was taken by Lord Fitzroy Somerset Raglan, who was the British Commander-in-Chief at Crimea, and was to look towards the Causeway Heights where it was believed the Russians were seizing artillery guns. However, there was miscommunication in the chain of command, and the Light Brigade was instead sent on a frontal assault against a different artillery battery, one well prepared with excellent fields of defensive fire. The Light Brigade faced withering fire from three sides, which devastated their force on the ride. Yet, they were able to engage the Russian forces at the end of the valley and force them back from the redoubt. 
The light brigade set off down the valley with Cardigan in front, leading the charge on his horse, Ronald. Almost at once, Nolan rushed across the front, passing in front of Cardigan. It may be that he realised that the charge was aimed at the wrong target and was attempting to stop or turn the brigade, but he was killed by an artillery shell and the cavalry continued on its course. Captain Godfrey Morgan was close by and saw what happened. The first shell burst in the air about 100 yards in front of us. The next one dropped in front of Nolan's horse and exploded on touching the ground. He uttered a wild yell as his horse turned round. With his arms extended, the range dropped on the animal's neck. He trotted towards us, but in a few yards dropped dead off his horse. I do not imagine that anybody except those in the front line of the 17th Lancers saw what had happened. As we came nearer, I could see plainly enough, especially when I was about 100 yards from the guns. I appeared to be riding straight onto the muzzle of one of the guns, and I distinctly saw the gunner apply his fuse. I shut my eyes then, for I thought that settled the question as far as I was concerned. The shot just missed me and struck the man on my right full in the chest. In another minute I was on the gun and the leading Russian's grey horse shot, I suppose, with a pistol by somebody on my right. Fell across my horse, dragging it over with him and pinning me between the gun and himself. A Russian gunner on foot at once covered me of his carbine. He was just within reach of my sword and I struck him across his neck. The blow did not do much harm, but it disconcerted his aim. At the same time, a mounted gunner struck my horse in the forehead of his sabre. Spurring Sir Briggs, he half jumped, half blundered over the fallen horses, and then for a short time bolted with me. I only remember finding myself alone among the Russians, trying to get out as best I could. This by some chance, I did in spite of the attempts of the Russians to cut me down. Half a league, half a league, half a league onward, all in the valley of death rode the 600. Forward the light brigade, charge for the guns, he said. Into the valley of death rode the 600. Forward the light brigade, was there a man dismayed? Not though the soldier knew, someone had blundered. There's not to make reply, there's not to reason why, there's but to do and die. In the valley of death rode the 600. The British forces suffered heavy casualties and were soon forced to retire. The surviving Russian artillerymen returned to their guns and opened fire with grape shot and canister shot indiscriminately at the melee of friend and foe before them. The brigade was not completely destroyed but did suffer terribly, with 118 men killed, 127 wounded and about 60 taken prisoner. After regrouping, only 195 men were still with horses. The Russian commanders were said to have initially believed that British soldiers must have been drunk to have committed themselves to that particular charge. Cannon to right of them, cannon to left of them, cannon in front of them, volleyed and thundered. 
stormed that with shot and shell. Boldly they rode and well. Into the jaws of death, into the mouth of hell, rode the 600. Newspaper report on the 11th of December 2016 revealed another version of what happened when a letter was found in the British Library written by Lieutenant Frederick Max, who was on Raglan's staff at Balaclava. It said that Lord Raglan had sent an order for the Light Brigade to follow the enemy and try to prevent the enemy from carrying away the guns, referring to some British artillery which were at risk. Raglan sent the order with Captain Louis Nolan, who passed it on to Lucan orally instead of handing over the written orders. He said, There, my lord, is your enemy. There are your guns. Adding the word attack, whereas Ragland had intended merely a show of force. Nolan's version of the order and accompanying gesture were misunderstood, causing the disaster described before. Flashed all their sabres bare, flashed as they turned in air, sabring the gunners there, charging an army, while all the world wondered. Plunged in the battery smoke, right through the line they broke, Cossack and Russian reeled from the sabre stroke. Shattered and sundered, then they rode back, but not, but not the 600. Nolan rode with the charge and was one of the first to fall in it. Max's letter said that Nolan was annoyed at how little the Light Brigade had done previously in the campaign and that he was bitter against Lucan. Nigel Kingscote, another of Raglan's staff officers, agreed that the fault was Nolan's and said that Nolan would have been broke by court-martial if he had survived. Cannon to right of them, cannon to left of them, cannon behind them, bollied and thundered, stormed at with shot and shell, whilst horse and hero fell. They that fought so well came through the jaws of death, back from the mouth of hell, all that was left of them, left of six hundred. When can their glory fade, O oh, the wild charge they made? All the world wondered, honour the charge they made. Honour the Light Brigade, Noble 600. Anthony Wilder, who was in the charge of the Light Brigade, passed away on the 14th of October, 1894, in Bristol. He was born in Taplow, Buckinghamshire, to Simon and Sarah Wilder, and was the oldest child. Anthony had enlisted with the 11th Hussars, also known as Prince Albert's Hussars, when he was only 19 years old and went through the Crimean campaign receiving the English and Turkish medals. He married Amelia Hulbert in 1857. She passed away unfortunately in 1878. After 12 years of service he left the army and settled in Bristol as a member of the Great Western Police Force. He became widely known both on account of his interesting history and his kind and courteous behaviour to everyone. He would also wear his railway uniform with the two war medals on, which made him a very conspicuous character at the station. He attended the Alma Banquet in September of 1894, the War Veterans Church Parade at the Cathedral, and with the other Bristol veterans, he was at the lifeboat demonstration 
on the 22nd of September. He stayed with the Great Western Company for 31 years until his health started failing and forced him to retire. On the 1891 census, he was listed as being a patient at the Royal Mineral Water Hospital in Bath. He had been enjoying retirement before he died suddenly following a short illness at his home in 140 York Road, Newcut, Bristol. A small company of the Royal Artillery from Holfield Barracks attended his funeral with a gun carriage to bear the coffin. The Bristol Volunteer Engineers sent a band and a large firing party. A great many people lined York Road to watch as the funeral procession assembled and slowly proceeded up York Road before making its way to Arnas Vale Cemetery. Shortly after two o'clock, the coffin was placed on the gun carriage, which was drawn by six horses with two riders. And as the procession started, the band played the Dead March from Saul. Next came the firing party followed by the gun carriage, where the coffin was covered with the Union Jack, on which were placed a number of beautiful wreaths. On each side of the coffin walked the pallbearers, and following the coffin was the spare horse. The Royal Hussars were next in mourning coaches and the carriages of Mr Wilder's doctor, Mr Walter, followed. Next in order were 120 members of the Crimean and Indian Mutiny War Veterans Association, all proudly wearing their medals and ribbons, and behind those were a large number of railwaymen. A huge number of people followed the procession to the cemetery and the service, held by the graveside, and the whole thing was witnessed by a large number of spectators, besides those taking part in the procession. The service was closed by the firing party, firing a volley over the grave. His gravestone reads, Anthony Wilder, who fell asleep October the 14th, 1894, aged 63 years, a loving husband and fond father, one of the noble 600. Are you tired of watching your beloved characters being tortured by careless authors? Are you sick of feeling like they could have swapped out all of the painful action and the plot would remain untouched? Subscribe to Books That Burn, the fortnightly book review podcast focusing on fictional depictions of trauma. We assume that the characters' reactions are reasonable and focus on how badly or well they were served by their authors. Join us for our minor character spotlights, main character discussions, and favorite non-traumatic things in the dark books we love. Find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Back in the day facts. Right, my friends, we'll start off with the 6th of February, when, in 1945, Jamaican singer and guitarist Bob Marley was born. Also on the 6th of February, in 1958, an aeroplane carrying the Manchester United football team crashed on takeoff in Germany, killing 23 people, including eight footballers. The crash became known as the Munich Air Disaster. On the 7th of February, 
in 1914, the premiere of the Keystone Studios short film Kid Auto Races at Venice was held. It featured Charlie Chaplin in his tramp disguise for the very first time. On the 8th of January in 1924, the gas chamber as a form of execution was first used when prisoner G. John was executed in Nevada State Prison, Nevada, USA. In 1942, on the 10th of February, Glenn Miller was awarded the first ever gold record for selling a million copies of Chattanooga Choo Choo. Also on the 10th of February, 1824, Samuel Plimsoll, inventor of a safety loading line for ships, was born at Redcliffe in Bristol. And on the 11th of February, 1531, King Henry VIII was recognised by the English clergy as supreme head of the Church of England. Pardon me, boy, is that the Chattanooga Juju? News just in. Due to the pandemic, Finland have just closed their borders. This means no one will be crossing the finish line. hope you enjoyed today's show and a huge thank you has to go out to Henry Arnold, Marcus KP and Steve Shepherd at Bradley Stoke Radio for bringing it all to life. You have been listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. Now, this podcast has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke Radio show in Bristol, England. If you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. If you didn't, well, let's just leave it at that, shall we? I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me via Twitter or Facebook using at BacktrackerUK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. Or, alternatively, you can email me at info at backtracker.co.uk. By the way, the tune in the background, that's by the model folk. You can find out more about them at themodelfolk.com So thank you so much for listening and until next time guys take care and look after each other <laughs>